So we're reading today from the uh, from Psalms, Psalms two. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we're continuing on now with um, our journey through Acts. We're reading today from Acts 17, verses 1 through to 15. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined, joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they had received the message with great eagerness and examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens 
and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Our loving Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful, precious part of the Bible. And we ask that you'd help us, even if this story is familiar, to be able to hear it with fresh ears so that you do our work, do your work through your spirit in our minds to change our hearts, that we would see the world and we would see Christ and we would see the urgency of the times in the way in which you see them. May your will be done in our lives in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we've just had Acts 17, 1 to 15 read. I hope you've got it open. Please do so if you can. It's a tale of two cities, not the cities of London and Paris, which featured in Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, but the cities of Thessalonica. Okay, so we're up the top left-hand side of the map. And Berea. Thessalonica is in bold. If you can see that, your eyesight's very good. <laughs> Down in Berea, a bit further southwest. Dickens began his tale of two cities with the words, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And he was referring to the times of the French Revolution, uh, which he set his novel in. Well, Luke, the author of Acts, writes at a time not of French Revolution, but of Gospel Revolution. Because when Paul came to Thessalonica and preached the Gospel, the city gets turned upside down. It was the best of times. Verse four, those who responded included some of the Jews, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few prominent women. Later on, looking back on that moment, the apostle would later write in 1 Thessalonians, his first letter to that church, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with the Holy Spirit and with power and with deep conviction. He'll say, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. It was the best of times. But also, it was the worst of times. The, the church encountered severe suffering because the other Jews, seeing the response the gospel created, they became jealous, they formed a mob, they started a riot, could you believe it? They ejected Paul out of the city, and poor Jason, um, this new convert, he's caught in the middle, the mob dragging him out from his home and then accusing him of treason. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Now, what made this message impact that city in such a way? Well, it was because within it, it entailed a, a totally revolutionary paradigm shift in what Paul was preaching. Paul spent three Sabbaths in the synagogue reasoning, explaining, proving from the scriptures three things. Number one, that the Christ must suffer. Number two, that the Christ must rise. And number three, that Jesus, he is the Christ. Now my guess is that when we heard that, Christ must suffer, Christ must rise, Jesus is the Christ, we go, yep, 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 tick, tick, tick. <laughs> And we move on without much thought. But hang on a moment, that message overturned the city. Now why? Well, the distilled version of that message in its essence comes out in the charge leveled against Jason in verse seven. They are saying that there is another king, 
one called Jesus. And they understood that whether you, I mean, for the, in the city, whether you accepted that message or you railed against it, everyone who heard it knew that entailed within the gospel message was a complete paradigm shift, a completely different way of looking at the world. You know what a paradigm shift is, don't you? It's what teenagers encounter when they experience, when they go, oh, mum and dad don't know everything. I thought they did, but now I realise they don't. And then as an adult, when you go, oh, GFC, COVID, there is no such thing as financial security after all. I thought there was, but no, there's not. Or COVID, oh, future certain travel plans. Well, they don't exist, do they? Oh, far out. Or then September the 11th, you know, when the whole Western world suddenly had to go, oh, maybe not every nation in the world thinks of the US as benevolently as they think of themselves. <laughs> a paradigm shift changes the whole way you look at reality. That's what the city officials understood that Paul and his gospel brought, was, uh, brought to Thessalonians. Verse seven, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and verse seven, Jason has welcomed them into his house. And they're all defying Caesar's decrees because they're saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Now that claim that there is another king, one called Jesus, caused this rethink, this paradigm shift across the Roman world. Only months before, in AD 49, the Roman emperor, Claudius, issued an imperial edict from Rome which expelled all the Jews from Rome. Now, why did he do that? Well, Suetonius, the Roman historian, tells us that, here it is, it was because the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, that is, Christ. Here is evidence from a non-Christian source back in AD 49 that the news of Christ the King was making waves. And that aligns with Luke's own reference to Claudius's edict in chapter 18, verse two, the next chapter. It shows Luke's account was real history. But the point is that the news of Jesus being king really was turning the Roman world upside down. Now, why was it such a big deal? Because it threatened the very beliefs that held the Roman Empire together. Uh, and that's dangerous if you're trying to hold the Roman Empire together. In Adelaide, we have our own beliefs that hold us together. You may think, no, we don't. It's not, not sort of a statement of beliefs that all people in Adelaide have to subscribe to. But think about it. We live in a very cohesive, very tolerant, very peaceable society. And that's the case because it's held together by beliefs which we share in common. We could workshop what they are. Here's a little list I came up with. For example, the best thing that a parent can do an Australian parent can do is to raise their kids in Adelaide, right? That's what everyone in Adelaide understands. We try to keep a secret from the rest of the country, but we understand, we get it, okay? You know, you people who've moved across from Sydney, you did a very smart thing. <laughs> we tolerate you, but you know, don't tell anyone. Okay, secondly, retiring in the Adelaide Hills is the best thing you can do with your life, right? I mean, that's why we're here, right? 
Thirdly, everyone is entitled to choose their own religion and to worship God their own way. This goes back to, um, you know, the, the treaty or the, the acts of parliament that, that Adelaide was, was founded on when people came out to worship God that founded the city of churches. This is a belief that we hold intrinsic. Now, there are more beliefs than that, but back in the first century, Rome used religion to unite the empire. It was the religion of emperor worship. And so, once a year, the only exception was Judea, because there are Everyone knows they're just hot, hotheads and uncontrollable, so they were let off. But everyone else, you had to go to your nearest temple to the emperor, there was one in Thessalonica, and you had to worship him, everyone in the empire, once a year. You had to come to the image of Caesar, you had to burn incense to it, you had to say, Caesar is Lord. And if you did that, you just went home and you worshiped whatever God you wanted to, but you had to do that. Now, that was precisely what Christians now could not do. <laughs> and that is why tens of thousands of them were later martyred. They were saying, no, verse 7, there is another king, one called Jesus, meaning we will not bow and offer sacrifice to Caesar as Lord. Now, John Stott, the Bible commentator, he said of this moment in the story, Paul and Silas were charged with high treason, and it is hard to exaggerate the danger to which this exposed them. The very suggestion of treason against the emperors often proved fatal to the accused. Now, if you wonder about this, remember the charge that Jesus himself was crucified on? I mean, it was nailed just above him that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. That was the charge. Treasonous, and Jesus was a good advertisement for what happens to people who hold that belief. Okay. Um, and yet that is what his followers believed. And that is what they were willing to die for. Um, we have Eusebius, uh, the church historian, recording the, the example of Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna. Um, he, threat he was threatened to be torn with wild beasts or burnt alive if he... If he, wasn't, if he didn't sacrifice to Caesar. And Eusebius records his response. He says, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Bid the animals be brought. Now, was he insane? Well, we've just read Psalm 2. No, if you believe it, because Psalm 2 describes God's plan to send into his world and to enthrone in his world, in Jerusalem, a king, the king of kings, um, the one that would have the nations as his possession. And though, though Psalm 2 says the, the, the natural response of the nations against the Lord and against his anointed is to hate them and fight their authority, let us break off their chains and throw off their fetters. This is a laughable response from the Lord. He laughs. He's not threatened by this. He laughs. And so the wise response in Psalm 2, for all the nations of the world is to come on bended knees and bow down and kiss the hand of the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed, given that God has enthroned him with all authority as the king of kings. You see, Polycarp, Jason, they understood that 
Christ is the most important figure in the world. He is bigger than your life. He is bigger than mine. It is foolish to fight against him or to reject him. That would, I mean, that would be like picking a fight with the one who is on the very th- judgment seat, the throne of God, picking a fight with him when he has come into the world to be your savior. It would be lunacy. And so they realized not just the truth of the things Paul was speaking of, you know, that these things happen, but what he was speaking about was more wonderful, more significant, more substantial, more compelling, more life-changing than even the beliefs which which held the Roman Empire together. So now we're going to go through them, what Paul explained. One, two, three. Number one, the Christ had to suffer. Christ had to suffer on the cross to pay for our sins. Uh, It sounds ridiculous. Why should... How could I be saved by someone else suffering and why should the one who's my saviour die on a cross? That's ridiculous if he's my saviour. And then we realise that actually he, the reason why he died on the cross was to allow us to escape our judgement for our sin because if we paid that that, uh, price and the punishment needs to be paid in full, if we paid it, We're not saved, we're destroyed. Uh, The wages of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, Leviticus says, there is no forgiveness. So in love, God sent his son as the Messiah, the Christ, and he gave himself up to suffer in our place, to take upon himself the debt we could not pay, the debt that wasn't owed to him, that he didn't deserve, so that by his death, sinners can be reconciled to God. The Christ had to suffer. That means that salvation is not found through our own efforts of making atonement. It's not found through kind of becoming a slave to this impossibly high um, standard, you know, which over the course of our lives, which we deliberately, sorry, which we always fall short of. We're not in slavery to that because Christ suffered and then paid in full once for all, the sins for all people for all time, as scripture foretold, that Christ had to suffer. This is staggeringly good news. This is the best gift in the universe, in the history of the world, that the Christ had to suffer. This is necessary but wonderful. And it changes everything. Secondly, the Christ had to rise from the dead Because a saviour who's dead is no no saviour, is he? And a king who's dead has no authority anymore. But a saviour who is risen and ascended, he's the saviour and he's the king. He's the king of life and death. He's greater than any mortal king. He has been resurrected from the dead. He's the king of kings the king who has all authority. This week, I I asked the guys in our men's groups, we we looked at this passage, what it means for them personally, that Christ rose from the dead. And after a pause, I think, John, you said, it proves Christ is the son of God. (laughs) No one else has done that. And then it proves that, you know, someone else said that there's life after death because he's risen. And then it proves that because he's the one who's risen, that our life after death is found in him. 
in him who has triumphed over death. And it tells us the shape of our hope, that the shape of our hope isn't some ghostly, wafty, you know, spirit, you know, bodiless spirit sort of fluffing around, you know, who knows where. It's physical, it's real, it's material. Christ could be touched. You know, he ate, he had his real body, he was recognized, it's personal. Unlike Buddhism, our, our, our identity is obliterated. It doesn't become one in the ocean of nothingness. You know, we become, well, we are us, but we are transformed, imperishable, glorious, immortal. This is the shape of our hope. It's, it's physical, it, it's a new creation that we get to enjoy relationship and fellowship with God with in. And it proves, of course, his resurrection that we can then have confidence that Christ's death really did pay for our sins in full because only someone who is sinless could rise from the dead because the punishment for sin is death. But given that death couldn't keep hold of Christ, but he rose from the dead. What does that prove except that he is the sinless one and knowing that he is the sinless one, that means that his death for us really was a substitutionary death for us. He really did die, not for his own sins, but he died and gave up his life for the sins of others, for the guilty. And he could do that because he was sinless. And that means, of course, that our well, the price has been paid in full. You know, it wasn't Jesus' just toe that got resurrected or, you know, his shoulder that came up from the grave. His body, his whole body came up from the grave. The price has been paid in full. There is no more sacrifice for sins to be paid. And knowing that, that means that because you have this resurrection hope, that means if you have Christ, you have more riches than Bill Gates or the richest person in the world. Because what amount of money can buy, what insurance policy can buy resurrection from the dead? You might have noticed that life insurance is a misnomer. You only get it when you're dead. But this is life insurance. And it's free and he's provided for it. And that, of course, means that he is the answer. He is the answer to every existential crisis that you may or may not have had yet, but you will. He's the answer to grief. He's the answer to regret. He's the answer to growing old. He's the answer to life being cut short prematurely. He's the answer to what life is about. If you're, you know, like Jerry Seinfeld, you know, just sort of gaping into the chasm of nothingness and not knowing what life is about. If you have Christ, you have it all. You have reconciliation with God. You have hope. You have purpose now in this world. You have a new the promise of a new heavens and new earth. And that means that everything, that changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, the things that we've viewed as, viewed as riches and, and accumulate now, now that seems small change or even a distraction compared to the riches of knowing Christ and knowing that he has died for the sins of the world and been raised to be the ruler of the nations. This is good news for the nations. And it changes our perspective on world religions, doesn't it? Because they don't work, but faith in him does. The Christ had to suffer. The Christ had to rise. And thirdly, Jesus, the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, that one, he, he is the Christ. Some of you may remember back about 10 years in Adelaide to that uh, advertising program put on by churches called Jesus All About Life. And basically, advertising space was 
taken up, brought up on billboards and in cinemas and on televisions and magazines to splash Jesus out there <laughs> to try and see what splash that would have. Prior to that, the marketers did their market research and they came back to the church leaders and said, hey guys, there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is that the church doesn't have great PR in Australia at the moment. You know, not a great reputation, but the good news is that Jesus does. And people out there are much more willing to talk about him and have opinion about him than you, you even realise. So to know that Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, this is good news, isn't it? This is a reason to speak. Um, that he who taught with such profound depth and insight you know, how many laws are there? Which are the most important ones? Well, the most important of these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets. Hang on. This. For him to say that and just pick it out just like that, for him to be able to answer his detractors, for him to be able to smell a rat and speak through, cut through the hypocrisy, for him to be able to be so strong and so compassionate, for him to be able to relate to people and be known as the friend of sinners and yet be able to speak to uh, those in authority, for him who had authority to be able to give it up and selflessly give it away in service, not of him, but of others. He's the one who people would want to say, yes, it's right that he be the Christ, that he get all authority. Who else would you trust with that sort of authority than Jesus? Now, knowing that, puts him in a category that eclipses the beliefs that hold the world together, even the beliefs of, that hold family life together. It challenges the most basic views in our society, like the belief, for example, that it doesn't matter really what religion people have. Well, not so if Jesus is the Christ suffered and risen from the dead. Or the belief that you, the best thing you could do for your kids was to raise them in Adelaide. Well, if you raise them in Adelaide and don't introduce them to Jesus, you're a failure as a parent if he is their saviour and their Lord and makes meaning of life. Or the belief that the best thing you could do for yourself is to retire in the Adelaide Hills. <laughs> Have you noticed that people in the Adelaide Hills still grow old and die? Retirement is so short, isn't it? If, if that's what you think life is about, you are sucking on a dry peanut shell thinking that this is sustaining. It is such a shriveled up, dry husk of hope compared to the banquet that God puts in front of you in Christ and in the hope you have. Or, or the belief that, you know, Jesus is someone we can just take or leave. Not so, now that he is enthroned as saviour and judge of the world, before whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess him as Lord. Can you see why when Paul went to Thessalonica and he reasoned, argued, and persuaded from the scriptures that the Christ had to suffer and rise and that Jesus was the Christ, can you see that this was a message which turned that place upside down? It brought life, but it rocked the foundations of Roman society. And Jason was someone who suffered for it. 
Was Jason stupid? No, he wasn't, because according to David, who wrote Psalm 2, according to Jesus, who Psalm 2 is about, and according to Paul, who preached the sort of Jesus that was in Psalm 2, Jason, well, he will be proved right. After Paul's visit, sometime later, uh, Jason would have been in church and he would have heard the reading of a letter that Paul sent, his second letter, to them. And he would have heard Paul encouraging them and reminding them of these words. An encouragement to Jason, and in effect God saying to Jason, Jason, do you remember that riot? Do you remember how your kids saw you being roughed up? Do you remember how your daughter wakes with nightmares ever since that time? Do you remember how the mob attacked you and how you lost your job and how your home was trashed and how your wife's favourite vase, the one given her by her grandmother, was callously smashed and how your life has never been the same again because your neighbours and your friends ignore you? Do you remember? Well, one day, Jason, here's the encouragement, the Lord Jesus will return in blazing fire with his powerful angels and he will set the record straight and he will put right that wrong, and he will pay back trouble to those who've troubled you. Hear this, Jason, and keep proclaiming by life and by lip that there is another king, one called Jesus. And the question then is, do we do that? Do we proclaim by life and lip that there is another king, one called Jesus? When people listen to our speech, Are they able to conclude that we are living for another king named Jesus? When people look at our lives and how we live, will people conclude that it's Jesus we're living for, not ourselves? I mean, just imagine the impact if every person out there who had connection with every person in this room was able to see that we self-consciously live for Jesus our King. Imagine the impact. So what's missing? We ask ourselves, well, what message do we proclaim by our life and by our lip? Given what people see of us, given what people hear of us, what message are we passing on? Because we are passing on our message, what we believe will come out. And please understand, I'm preaching to myself here as much as to anyone else in this room at this point because this is challenging. Given the message we send to people about who we live for, who would people say we thought was at the center? Ourselves? Our kids? Or Jesus Christ? And you might say, hang on, I believe in the gospel. I'll say, what gospel? because it's very possible to think the gospel is all about me being saved from my sins and have myself at the center. As if all Jesus is, is a servant who gives his life so he can save me. And Jesus is a servant who does save us, but who is at the center? Is it Jesus or is it us? I can tell you, we need to see that believing that we are at the center is not the gospel message that Paul and Silas gave the Thessalonians because the distilled version 
of that message which their hearers heard and the mob throws back to their face is that there is another king, one called Jesus, and his rule is so ultimate that he is a legitimate threat to Caesar himself. Okay. Have you felt the punch? I hope so. <laughs> okay. So we can understand how the message through that large city of Thessalonica in turmoil. Paul went there because it was the strategic center from which the gospel could spread once it had been believed. Now Paul's kicked out, and we'd expect him now to go to another large city. But given what's happened, the major, any other major city on a highway is not going to be safe. And so the brothers there smuggled Paul and Silas out of the city and away to the relative safety and peace of Berea, which is 80 kilometers away and is off the main highway. Now, we're meant to compare these two cities. In both cities, Paul goes to the synagogue first. In both, there's a similar re response, a good response, many believing, both Jews and Greeks, many of the women who hold influence in the cities. In both cities, the Jews from Thessalonica agitate the crowds and drive Paul and Silas out, so they go together. But there is one thing that's different in Berea, and that is the notable character of the Jews there. They have such a high view of scripture. They are noble. They're not threatened by what Paul said. Instead, they listen to it and they test it according to the scriptures. And they do it every day, not just on the Sabbath, not once a week, but every day. They receive the message with eagerness and then they tested what Paul said to see if what he said was true. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And the Bereans are examples to us of what it means to have a noble character in the eyes of God. It's not that they worship the Bible. They didn't fall into bibliolatry as if the Bible was God. But what they did was they humbled themselves under the Bible. They allowed themselves to evaluate what they had heard in line with God's word because they realized there were still prophecies in the Old Testament which they knew had to be fulfilled and Paul was saying they're fulfilled in Jesus, they needed to check it out. And they realized, of course, the limits of their own understanding. They, no one, including them, did and could and could ever understand everything that there is about God. And so they were humble enough to realize that. But they realized also that what God gives us in his word is the truth. So even though they couldn't know everything about God, and no one can, the things that are written in the scriptures, they can know truly. And so they demonstrate in a very real way, by coming and sitting under the scriptures, that our regard for the word of God in the Bible is a measure of our regard for God himself. Because they wanted God to speak to them through the scriptures. So they listened, they listened, they listened. So, from the Bereans, here's the challenge. What's your regard for the Bible? Uh, do you read it? Some people here read it daily. Some people read it hardly at all. Even if you've read it once, do you still read it? And when you read it, why do you read it? Do you read it to tick the box so you can say, I've done that on my Bible reading plan? Do you read it just to get head information? Or do you read it carefully to hear God speaking to you? 
I have a bookmark at home uh, with a quote from John Bunyan, the author of A Pilgrim's Progress, and it says this, it is possible to learn about the mysteries of the Bible and never to be affected by it in one's soul. Great knowledge is not enough. Well, speaking personally, I have the immense privilege of being able to sit in the Bible a lot more during the week than you have time for, and I have the great privilege, and it is a privilege, of being able to explain it. This is a high privilege. Um, But over the years, I have really been helped by people like you who've sat through things like this and have come come to me later on and said, look, I know what you were saying and I was listening carefully, but with respect, I don't think you got that quite right. And I've welcomed those comments. They don't come very often. (laughs) Uh, People are respectful, or maybe they don't listen. I think they listen. I am trying to get it right as well. But I've been really helped and welcomed those comments when they've come, and normally they have been right, and then I've been able to correct it the next week. Because I need to put myself under the scriptures as well, and I need you to help me to be under the scriptures as you are. So, application point, you need to listen to the Bible being taught with your Bibles open. Do you have a Bible open? Do you have it on your screen? Okay, if you don't, here's your homework. Go home, get organized, and next week, come back with your Bible or your Bible open. Be like a Berean of noble character. Okay, let's draw quickly some threads together of what we've learnt First of all, Paul going to Thessalonica and Berea reflects a strategic realism. He knows he has to go to Macedonia, the big area, but he goes to Thessalonica because it's the capital, and he goes there because he he thinks, I've got limited time, but I want to make the biggest splash for the gospel that I can, where the news will spread out as quickly. So he's strategic. Um, In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, we see his wisdom because he says, he'll write back and say, Guess what, guys? The Lord's message has rung out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in fact, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Thessalonica was a port, and it's rumored that the sailors who spread out on the ships across the Roman world had heard about how genuine was the faith of the the Thessalonian Christians who'd suffered so much, and they were talking about it. And the news of Christ spread throughout the Roman world. So Paul was wise in going to the big capital. And we need to be thinking about how, as a church, do we make the biggest splash for the gospel? Um, In your life, you're thinking, I've got a limited number of years in my lifespan. How do I, in my life, in my life decisions, make the biggest splash for the gospel that I can? Now, that's a hard question, but we ought to at least be thinking about it and talking about it with one another. And as a church, we've got to think also, you know, how how do we make as big a splash as we can? You know, should we plant, for example? But Paul didn't just go to Thessalonica, he went to Berea, the safe place. And this tells us that there's also realism. Sometimes the most strategic option is not an option. You can go where you can when you can. I was saying to Sally, we went on a walk this week, and I I said, it's interesting how God opens and closes doors. So, you know, I went to India when I could, but with Mahendra Modri as Prime Minister, 
Christian missionaries have a hard time getting in there. And I went to Myanmar when I could, but at the moment the door is closed. It's interesting how God opens and closes different doors. And you're thinking, well, if a door is open, it might be worthwhile going through. But sometimes he closes doors. And so what do you do? You do what you can. If your strategic option isn't available, you don't do nothing. You do what you can in the circumstance God has placed you in. And so what circumstance has God placed you in? He may have shut a door to you being able to speak to some of your friends, but opened up another door to another group of people. There may be some work colleagues, some university friends, some high school friends who you can't speak to anymore because you've tried and they've said, don't speak to me anymore about this. But there are others and more friendships to make. You can. Okay, so strategic realism. The second point is that evangelism is more than just proclamation. If we look at what Paul had to do in Thessalonica and Berea, we saw that evangelism involves reasoning, explaining, proving, persuading. That all takes time. Sometimes we can have a very reduced view of evangelism. If I talk, uh, trot out my one sentence you know, of the gospel and someone doesn't believe, can I just say, oh, well, they're, not, they're obviously not one of the elect, you know, wipe my hands. No, no, no. The way into our hearts that God uh, takes us is through our ears into our minds and then in our hearts. Because the gospel involves a radical paradigm shift, putting Jesus at the center, having him, seeing him as the most important, that takes time to process and thoughts need to be challenged, okay? So you've got to come back to people and give them time and keep speaking to them again and again and listen to their questions and try and answer their questions. And if you haven't got the answer, say, that's okay, I'll try and find out the answer and come back. It takes time for people to become Christians. Okay. And then what are you explaining? Well, the three points, and I won't go over them in detail, we'll skip that part, but the Christ had to suffer, the Christ had to rise, Jesus is the Christ. Finally, the last example of the Bereans tells us that having scripture as our highest authority means humility and testing. Um, often we can believe because I've read the Bible and I have my grid, if someone says something which is a bit different to that, they're wrong. All right, now what that's doing is it's elevating reason above scriptures, okay? Now, I'm not suggesting if someone comes in and preaches a different gospel, because we can say, no, 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 remember what Paul taught? Christ had to die, had to suffer, Christ had to rise, Jesus is the Christ, that's the gospel. So if someone teaches a different gospel, we know from Paul and the scriptures, we, we can filter that one out, but we ought not to be so precious about our own grid as to think we can't learn anymore. And so let me now make an unashamed plug at the end of Acts 17, this passage, for our growth groups. Okay, if you want to grow deeper in the knowledge of the Bible, then perhaps this is one of the best ways to do it in our church, to join a growth group. So here's my invitation, my exhortation, that if you are not yet in a growth group, if you haven't signed up, see Narelle, she's in charge of them. And then if you are in a growth group, uh, then attend go to them, because it won't be any good for you to be signed up for a growth group if you don't go. And then when you go, please don't just go for the social, or don't just go for the prayer, although both of those are wonderful. Go 
to learn more of the scriptures together. And when you go, don't just go to learn more of the scriptures together, don't just fill your head with knowledge, go to listen to God and to grow in the knowledge of God together. Okay. Well, that's enough. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask, great God, that you'd help us to think strategically with strategic realism. Paul going to Thessalonica, a strategic place, but then having to retreat to Berea where you did another great work. Um, Please open doors for the gospel in our lives and in our church. Uh, We pray particularly that this year would be a year where we grow, where you add to our number people being saved and you grow us deeper in knowledge of you and trust in you so that next year we can plant a church. May we grow this year to be able to plant later. And Lord, we pray help us to have that nobility of character of the Bereans, to make it a personal goal for ourselves to to know the Bible better at the end of the year, by the end of the year, and then to be able to have grown in faith and deep trust in you and to be able to hear you and to be able then to sift what we hear from others. In Jesus' name, amen.